What a contrast it was. Then to walk into Cairo University's Grand Hall and find a packed, absolutely crackling, a packed house absolutely crackling with energy. We'd pressed the government to open my address to a wide cross-section of Egyptian society, and it was clear that the mere presence of university students, journalists, scholars, leaders of women's organizations, community activists, and even some prominent clerics and Muslim Brotherhood figures among the 3,000 present would help make this a singular event, one that would reach a wide global audience via television. As soon as I stepped onto the stage and delivered the Islamic salutation, Assalamu alaikum. The crowd roared its approval. I was careful to make clear that no one speech was going to solve entrenched problems. But as the cheers and applause continued through my discussions of democracy, human rights, and women's rights, religious tolerance, and the need for a true and lasting peace between a secure Israel and an autonomous Palestinian state, I could imagine the beginnings of a new Middle East. In that moment, it wasn't hard to envision an alternative reality in which the young people in that auditorium would build new businesses and schools, lead responsive, functioning governments, and begin to reimagine their faith in a way that was at once true to tradition and open to other sources of wisdom. Perhaps the high-ranking government officials who sat grim-faced in the third row now could imagine it as well. I left the stage to a prolonged 
standing ovation and made a point of finding Ben who was who as a rule got too nervous to watch any speech he'd helped to write and instead hold up in some back room tapping into his blue his black berry he was grinning from ear to ear quote i guess that worked i said quote that was historic he said without a trace of irony. In later years, critics and even some of my supporters would have a field day contrasting the lofty, hopeful tone of the Cairo speech speech with the grin grim realities that would play out in the Middle East during my two terms in office. For some it showed the sin of naivete, one that undermined key U.S. allies like Mubarak and thus emboldened, emboldened the forces of chaos for others. The problem was not the vision set forth in the speech, but rather what they considered my failure to deliver on that vision with effective, meaningful action. I was tempted to answer, of course, to point out that I'd be the first to say that no single speech would solve the region's long-standing challenges that we'd pushed hard on every initiative I mentioned that day, whether large, a deal between the Israelis and the Palestinians, or small, the creation of training programs for would-be entrepreneurs, that the arguments I made in Cairo were ones I'd still make. But in the end, the facts of what happened are the facts, and I'm left with the same set of questions I first wrestled with as a young organizer. How useful is it to describe the world as it should be 
when efforts to achieve that world are bound to fall short. Was Vaclav Havel correct in suggesting that by raising expectations, I was doomed to disappoint them? Was it possible that abstract principles and high-minded ideals were and always would be nothing more than a pretense, a palliative, a way to beat back despair, but no match for the more primal urges that really moved us so that no matter what we said or did, history was sure to run along its predetermined course, an endless cycle of fear, hunger, and conflict, dominance, and weakness. Even at the time doubts came naturally to me, the sugar high of the speech quickly replaced with thoughts of all the work awaiting me back home and the many forces arrayed against what I hoped to do. The excursion we took, we took immediately after the speech deepened my brooding a 15-minute helicopter ride high over the sprawling city until suddenly the jumble of cream-colored, cubist-looking structures was gone, and there was only desert and sun, and the wondrous geometric lines of the pyramids cutting across the horizon. Upon landing, we were greeted by Cairo's leading Egyptologist, a happily eccentric gentleman with a floppy, wide-brimmed hat straight out of an Indiana Jones movie. And for the next several hours, my team and I had the place to ourselves. We sealed the we scaled the ancient boundary like my eyes are so dry. <laughs> I've been reading for the last I don't know maybe twelve or more hours. <laughs> It's, this book is so good, I can't stop. My eyes are just so dry. I'm going to have to wrap it up pretty soon, though. Oh, we scaled the ancient boulder-like stones of each pyramid's face. We, we stood in the shadow of the sphinx, staring up 
at its silent, indifferent gaze, we climbed a narrow, vertical chute to stand within one of the pharaoh's dark inner chambers, the mystery of which was punctuated by Axis' timeless words during our careful descent back down the ladder. Whoa. <laughs> oh, I've just skipped this bad word. Quote, GD it, Ram, slow down. Your A is in my face. <laughs> Close quote. At one point, as I stood watching Gibbs and some of the other staffers trying to mount camels for the obligatory tourist pictures, Reggie and Marvin motioned for me to join them inside the corridor of one of the pyramid's lesser temples. Quote, check it out, boss, Reggie said, pointing at the wall. There, carved in the smooth, porous stone, was the dark image of a man's face, not the profile typical of hieroglyphics, but a straight-on headshot, a long, oval face, prominent ears sticking straight out like handles, a cartoon, a cartoon of me, somehow forged in antiquity. <laughs> Quote, must be a relative, Marvin said. We all had a laugh then, and the two of them wandered off to join the camel riders. Our guide couldn't tell me just who it was that the image depicted, or even whether it dated back to the time of the pyramids, but... I stood at the wall for an extra beat, trying to imagine the life behind that etching. Had he been a member of the royal court? A slave? A foreman? Maybe just a bored vandal camped out at night centuries after the wall had been built, inspired by the stars and his own loneliness to sketch his own likeness. I tried to imagine the worries and strivings that might have consumed him in the nature of the world he'd occupied, likely full of its own struggles and palace intrigues, conquests and catastrophes, events that probably at the time felt 
no less pressing than those I'd face as soon as I got back to Washington. All of it was forgotten now. None of it mattered. The pharaoh, the slave, and the vandal all long turned to dust. Just as every speech I deliver, every law I passed, and decision I made would soon be forgotten. Just as I and all those I loved and would someday turn to dust. 